Welcome to The Better's Verdict. We have an absolutely fascinating episode lined up today. We're going to talk about gaming app addiction and the, this burgeoning law in this area. But we're not going to talk about what you typically might think of when you think of gambling addiction. A casino scene jumps to mind with folks losing their money in a hopeless bid for a last-ditch lucky streak in the middle of the night. That's not what we're talking about today. With the rise of smartphones, gambling has been repackaged in ways that we couldn't have imagined even 20 years ago. New fortunes are being made through these age-old methods. Get your customers hooked, keep them coming back for more. But now, what customers are hoping for is not a lucky streak to win it all back. In fact, they're not hoping to win at all in the conventional sense. Today, we'll be discussing loot boxes, social casinos, and these sorts of false, fake casinos we all have in our pockets on our phones. I'm thrilled to have on with me my colleagues, Danielle Langoff and Yasmin Mita, who specialize in the defense of complex product liability litigation, engagement in government consultations, and have specialized in handling addiction-related claims such as these to guide us through this sort of burgeoning abyss. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, it's good to be here. So first, we're going to talk about loot boxes. This is a term a lot of listeners may have never heard before. W what are these? Well, loot boxes are essentially um, items that players in online video games purchase with in-game currency. And they usually have um, a, a randomized rewards where it, they don't know what they're getting. They're hoping to get something that they consider to be of value but they are essentially purchasing what's akin to what some would say is, is gambling. Uh, these are chance-based outcomes. Yeah, you can get a lot of different things in a loot box. So you could get cosmetic items, so stuff for your game customization, so a different skin, or you could get stuff that affects your gameplay, so you could get tools, maps, or currency. It's really interesting. So there are lots of different thoughts about what a loot box is, so whether it's a game of chance, um, which is obviously associated with gambling, or whether it's a mystery box, which is the view that the industry has been putting forward. So I read an article saying that EA compared paying for loot boxes to buying things like Kinder Eggs or Hatchmalls, or something called LOL Surprise, where you seem to get a small doll with very large eyes. Um, <laughs> so there's a distinction to be had here between an app where you finish a level and you press a mystery box and get some sort of surprise power-up versus something where you maybe have a spin on a wheel to win one of three potential power-ups. Is that right? That's right. As Yasmin mentioned, you can get many different types of loot boxes. Some can be purely cosmetic, um, and players may value that because it appeals to their sense of identity in the game, or it may look cool, and it may be um, something that they think will be socially rewarding or it may be something where they can progress further in the game and then go on to get greater rewards. And, and in many instances, these, these items can actually be gotten freely within, within the game. So what's the problem? How are operators making money off of this? Yes, you're absolutely right. Some of these items can be obtained by continuing to play the game. This is a way for players to proceed more quickly in the game. Um, this is a way to obtain items that the players might perceive to be of more value. And, and these are microtransactions, so typically they cost a couple bucks and you the player will purchase it and, you know, experience kind of the rush of getting something that they're, you know, they don't know what they're going to get 
and then hopefully finding out that they've got this particularly valuable item. And sometimes you can't just get it by playing the game. Sometimes it's a really rare item. And sometimes also, depending on the type of loot box, so for example, in Japan, you have these things called kompu gacha, um, where you have to acquire a certain number of items before you can get this other much more rare item. So it's very varied. And I can, mm. yeah, I can certainly see how it would be addictive, where you would want to spend more and more to try and get that coveted item. Um, we were talking about this yesterday, but I um, I spent a considerable portion of my pocket money as a child on Spice Girl photographs because you'd have these envelopes and you'd never know what you were getting, but you knew the full the full repertoire of the available photos. And you yeah, I spent a huge amount of money on it. I have two full albums. <laughs> Gambling experts will say that the, the very randomized nature of loot boxes actually is designed to encourage purchases in a manner that's similar to gambling, that players will experience a rush when they open up a loot box. And the more they do it, the more they will be conditioned to continue doing it and looking for that feeling of excitement. Mm. The seasoned gamblers amongst the listeners to this podcast, it, it may call to mind a slot machine where you're, you're playing in quarter after quarter and sometimes you lose, sometimes you win small and you're really seeking that outcome where you win big. But this sort of variable reinforcement is what psychologists refer to as the most addicting thing in the casino, that you never know when that major bit of positive reinforcement is going to come. So you're saying that's sort of the same with these loot boxes, except instead of the prize being a million dollar jackpot, it is a, you know, rare gold armor or some item in the game that helps you get further. Absolutely. And in fact, a lot of researchers are now likening loot box behavior to uh, slot machines. And uh, for someone who who is a traditional gambler who might not understand how could this possibly be something of value or equivalent to, to traditional gambling where you're making money potentially if you're successful, or something of value that you can use in the real world, researchers uh, who are looking at loot boxes say that notions of value are, are more nuanced and subjective than in tra traditional gambling games mm. where you get simple cash rewards. So um, with the prized loot box assets you might get, uh, they might be, as we just mentioned, you know, something that fulfills that player's psychological needs, whether it's to look cooler in the game, to advance more quickly in the game, or to experience possibly that that rush of, of excitement or, or dopamine that they might get when they're doing something that is thrilling to them. Mm. So where the rubber may meet the road on this, um, although we're, we're gonna talk about the lawsuits that have, that have started occurring on this front, but with respect specifically to this podcast, what immediately jumps to mind is, does this run afoul of gambling laws? So as we know, they vary from state by state across all 50 states. But as a general matter, gambling laws require to be illegal, risking something of value on the occurrence of a chance event for a potentially valuable prize. So the question that will inevitably come before judges and regulators is whether these this sort of loot box phenomena satisfies these elements, risking something of value, a chance event, potentially valuable prize. Now, I would posit that it doesn't because 
well, no doubt if you buy in some something, you are risking something of value. And if it is a sort of slot machine setup where you don't know what you're getting, it is also a chance event. But I, the thing I dispute is that something that advances you in a game is a potentially valuable prize. What do you guys think? I think it could potentially be a prize. I think it depends on whether you're able to ch- to trade the item that you've bought. And also, I think, again, this is from my um, experience watching the Big Bang Theory, I think there is a market, of, like, potentially the black market, where you can you can trade your items and people can purchase them for real-world money. And that in itself demonstrates that a real economic value does exist, even though it is not necessarily the legitimate market. But basically, there's a really interesting case in the Netherlands. Um, the court specifically looked at this issue in the context of determining whether loot boxes should fall within the scope of the Dutch Betting and Gaming Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things they looked at, so one of the elements to decide whether or not something should, whether or not the act should apply, is whether the results of loot box qualify as a prize. Whether the results of the loot box? Yeah, qualify as a prize. What does prize. that mean? As in, so that was one of the questions that the court looked at. So oh. it's you know would your would your skin that you'd be purchasing purchasing is that is that a prize? And so the gate the gaming company basically said virtual goods only have a value within the gaming mode. Um, there is no real economic value, and even though there is a black market where you can sell virtual goods, that doesn't actually change the legal status of the items. But then the court, sorry, this sorry. is what a court a foreign court said. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. So the the argument a second ago was what the gaming company said, but the court said that the concept of a prize needs to be interpreted very broadly. And so they said the value of the virtual goods to be won was based on supply and demand in the internal market, market where players may transfer the goods in exchange for in-game credits between each other. And the economic value was reflected in the fact that in-game credits represent a value in euros. And they said, wow. the fact, yeah, they said the fact that the black market exists for the virtual goods and on in-game credits can actually be converted into real money is an additional indication that a real economic value exists. So this was the uh, this was the Hague District Court, and they yeah they ended up. Well, that it. certainly flies in the face of my inclination, <laughs> and what I suspect will be the inclination of gamblers listening to this podcast who can't <laughs> imagine using real money for <laughs> virtual worthless chips to advance in a game. I will note though that I mean that is a very interesting case. It it's certainly. Um, different elsewhere because in a lot of jurisdictions players are prohibited from selling offline their loot box rewards for real money Mm. so you know each i think each country is going to handle it differently and i think that from what i've seen the eu is in the forefront of trying to crack down on loot boxes as a gambling behavior I want to talk also about a related phenomenon, which is social casino apps. What these are are slot machine apps, often connected with social media like like Facebook, where you're not, once again, you're not gambling for real currency. You're gambling for fake virtual currency on a slot machine on your phone. Now, as I've a theme that I've been pounding on this episode so far is that for high stakes gamblers listening. They cannot understand the appeal of slot machines on your phone that don't give you real money. But last year, consumers purchased and gambled away billions of dollars in fake social casino virtual chips. Can you explain? (laughs) Help us. Well, I think uh, here 
in my view, you have even more potential that it will run afoul of of gambling laws and uh, be considered to be uh, a form of gambling because it's even more transparent in that players are are playing the the craps or the slots online, um, but they're using virtual money. I find it baffling as well uh, as to <laughs> the motivations. But the psychology of it is the same, and that is that people are um, doing this to satisfy certain psychological needs that they might have. And as the behavior becomes more conditioned, um, they become more invested in continued playing. And it leads to, um, for, for some who, uh, particularly for pro- people who are already problem gamblers, it's a very slippery slope. We've seen a class action lawsuit recently in California against Facebook of, of all places. And in that lawsuit, it alleges that of the top 12 grossing apps on Facebook, nine are social casinos. And that Facebook takes a 30% commission, which is far in excess of sort of what any casino actually makes on legitimate slots. Um, so, so this is this is fascinating that the the these lawsuits, at least, or this lawsuit alleges that Facebook is the sort of illegal casino here. Do we think that has any merit or accuracy? I'm not sure. I think it's still it's still very early days. I would note, though, that in the context of third party provider class actions with respect to loot boxes, for example, um, there was a class action against Google, and the um, a district judge in California dismissed the lawsuit because it said that Google was uh, shielded from liability because of the Communications Decency Act, and that protects certain internet-based actors from certain kinds of lawsuits. So that might be something that would apply in these uh, social casino class actions against Facebook. Mm. One of the most interesting factoids that I've seen in these lawsuits is an allegation that not only are these fake slot machines not giving real money, which everyone knows, but they are actually rigged in a way that wouldn't pass muster in any casino in the country. In other words, local gaming boards, for example, in Las Vegas, assure that slot machines pay out a certain percentage of every dollar that goes in, like 97% or 96% or something like that. And so while there is variable reinforcement in terms of the prizes you get, you know the machine is quote unquote fair because it is paying out in accordance with industry standards. Allegations I've seen about these social casinos is they don't even follow those sort of fairness standards, which is particularly confusing since what they're giving as prizes isn't even real money, but they're rather set to maximize the sort of addictive nature that the that the user will feel as they play the game. Have we seen in, in this or other contexts the intent of the platform or manufacturer mattering in terms of the way courts will decide on this? I think it's still early days here. Most of these cases, the class actions that that I'm referring to with respect to loot boxes uh, and the social casinos uh, were recently filed within the last several years. So they haven't made their way through the court system. 
but um, certainly the allegations that plaintiffs make are that the the manufacturers, the game developers intent, uh, and I would assume uh, Facebook's intent or failure to be transparent about the odds of winning, and in fact, making the odds virtually impossible to win will be a factor and is, is certainly going to be one that plaintiffs count plaintiffs bar will focus on uh, the allegations for example in the context of loot boxes is that the defendants in those cases uh, intentionally and knowingly misrepresented the odds of winning the loot, loot in the loot boxes through affirmative misrepresentations and material omissions and that um, had those plaintiffs known that their odds of winning the desired prize was so infinitesimally small, they would not have purchased them. And I would imagine mm. the same kind of claims were, would be made in the social casino cases. Mm. What do you think? I, yeah, I mean, to me, the fact that the, the apps and Facebook appear to be anyway, according to these allegations, maximizing for addictiveness, especially when it comes to children that may be using the apps and other more at-risk folks. That is a fact that I think the plaintiff's bar will really focus on, even if it is sort of meritless, given that, well, there's actually nothing of value at the end of the rainbow here, nothing of real value. Right. Well, and that raises a, an interesting point about uh, the youth issue. So the psychological literature more recently has has consistently reported that there is a link between loot box behavior and and problem gambling. But of particular concern is how loot box behaviors may affect children who are a good majority of the people that are purchasing these loot boxes. And as I mentioned, there is an emerging evidence base, um, particularly since 2017, when loot boxes, this issue really kind of gained notoriety reporting on this association. There is a concern that not only does the purchase of loot boxes, um, is it akin to playing the slot machine or, or promote gambling? It may be problematic for those who are already have a gambling problem, and it may also normalize gambling behavior. Mm. So what we've seen in, in the psychological literature is that uh, there are a number of gambling experts who, who report that adolescents are a group that is particularly susceptible to problem gambling. Um, and that exposure to gambling activities, which they would argue loot boxes are, is an important predictor of problem gambling among adults. Mm. And there are several reasons for this that um, with respect to adolescents, and that has to do with uh, neurodevelopmental research on young brains and how they're maturing and uh, coping strategies of adolescents, which may not be quite as formed as those for adults. Mm. So, Danielle, you mentioned several times that this is still a very young area of the law in the U.S. You know, we're not really sure how these claims are going to play out. But, Yasmin, we're seeing regulatory trends around the world. Um, you know, we already mentioned the, the Hague case in how different countries are handling this. What are we seeing? So it really does depend where where in the world you are. I think there's a huge dichotomy between what the media is saying. And so the media is centering upon links between loot boxes and gambling. But actually, it's, it's quite varied in practice. So some regulators 
are regulating loot boxes indeed under their gambling legislation, but others are regulating them under consumer protection law. And some are even doing a completely different approach and they're either doing, a, they're regulating them under a completely different regulatory regime or industry is stepping in and doing self-regulation. So um, I can go through a few examples. So in Asia, in Japan, the Consumer Protection Agency, the CAA, said that a particular type of loot box that I referred to earlier, the Compu Gacha, fell within the scope of the consumer protection laws and that it would then start enforcing those laws against them. And that then resulted in the gaming industry in Japan implementing a self-regulatory ban on those specific types of loot box. What's um, the theory for why it runs afoul of the consumer protection laws? Fine. So as a general matter, some of the countries that say that loot boxes should fall within the scope of consumer protection legislation are saying that because they're finding that loot boxes are misleading consumers. But moving on, so still within Asia and China, regulators have taken quite a hard approach towards loot boxes. So they have basically mandated that loot boxes need to include the probabilities of obtaining a particular item. And that needs to be disclosed either on the game's website or in the game itself. And manufacturers need to include the number of times you need to draw as opposed to a percentage chance of success and of winning the item. There's also a hard limit on the number of times you can open a loot box before you're guaranteed a specific item. Um, wow. So yeah. very specific rules to ensure that it's not like a slot machine where you can sit all night and get nothing. Yeah. And they've also had they've got a hard limit on the number of loot boxes you can open per day. Mm. Um, so that's Asia. It's completely different in Europe. So the European Parliament's Committee on Internal Market and Consumer Protection commissioned a report on loot boxes and their effects on consumers. And they recommended that there should be a focus on problematic game designs more broadly rather than a narrow focus on loot boxes. And also that that should be addressed from a wider consumer protection perspective. But that being said, you then have some European jurisdictions like Belgium, the Netherlands, which we spoke about earlier, and also Slovakia, that concluded that loot boxes fulfil their national gambling criteria. And in contrast to that, you then have France who concluded the opposite. And so they said loot boxes don't fall within the scope of the gambling regime, but they did criticise them um, on the basis that loot boxes can be seen as a gambling apprenticeship. And then there are a number of countries that are still deciding on the position. So Spain had a consultation earlier this year on how to regulate them. And the UK government is calling for evidence on the impact of loot boxes on gambling-like behaviour. And that's going to support its review of the Gambling Act. Let, let me jump in. Gambling <laughs> apprenticeship. I'm, I'm going to need you to say more on what this is. I know um, some of our listeners will be wondering where they can sign up for such an apprenticeship. So gambling apprenticeship, it basically means that they're concerned that loot boxes give rise to habits that introduce minors or have a gateway effect into real gambling. Mm, so again, we're back to we need to protect minors from yeah. engaging in this behavior, in this case from as I just said, signing up for a gambling apprenticeship. <laughs> Very interesting. So the U.S., as we said, may be lagging a little behind some of these other regimes, but we're seeing lawsuits. So, Danielle, what can uh, manufacturers do? You're a gaming company, a gaming app company, you're, you're Facebook. What can you do to protect yourself from the risk of this being perceived as gambling or running afoul of consumer protection laws or, or even more crazy, running afoul of RICO laws? We've seen RICO claims for collection of unlawful debt in this space. What, what can these companies do? Well, we're already seeing these companies starting to take uh, more self-regulatory measures. So, for example, Epic, who is the developer of Fortnite, which is, I think, still possibly the most popular online video game in the world at the moment, 
they have come out quite strongly now against uh, using or using loot boxes uh, in the way they had been in the past. In fact, Tim Sweeney, who is the co-founder of Epic Games, within the past year said that loot boxes play on all the mechanics of gambling, except for the ability to get more money out in the end. And he then said, do we want to be like Las Vegas with slot machines or do we want to be widely respected as creators of products that can consumers can trust? So what Epic has now done is they have changed their policies with respect to loot boxes and players now are able to view what's in the loot box before they purchase it. It's more akin to shopping than it is to gambling. So now I guess you would say that's really not a loot box anymore. That's just seeing an, like deciding to purchase a particular reward. And so in it fact, it strips the gambling element away from exactly, the platform. Exactly. And uh, in, a, uh, in one of the lawsuits, the class action lawsuits that was brought against Fortnite in California, there is a proposed settlement underway where over, over Fortnite's use of these randomized loot boxes, and they have uh, agreed to reimburse players for their in-game payments. They will get virtual currency that they can continue to use in the game. Mm. But, you know, on the one hand, it's a lot of money, but on the other hand, it's virtual money. <laughs> right, right. So, but, and but it continues. Removing these, removing these, this chance element or reimbursing or anything, won't that run the risk of reducing the player's appetite for the game? The, as we talked about, this sort of psychological variable reinforcement mechanism is part of the appeal. That's true. That's true. I don't know how it will play out, but yes, ab absolutely, it may have it may have a, an effect, and I think only time will will tell. Um, others in the industry are, um, from what I've seen so far, steadfastly uh, refusing to to change it and say that um, there is transparency and that the industry has provided uh, players and their parents, because a lot of the players are are, are youth with the information and the tools necessary to make informed decisions about their their gameplay experience and that these loot boxes are purely voluntary and optional you don't have to buy them mm -hmm. um so so that has been one of of the defenses but as far as some of the ways that these companies can mitigate risks one of them is to engage in more uh self-regulatory measures maybe uh I don't know if going as far as Epic has done is is what they'll do, but that's a possibility. It could also be that they could allow players to advance in the game um, in other ways beyond just buying the loot boxes. Mm -hmm. Some uh, they, they could consider more uh, substantial parental controls. A lot of these class actions have been brought on behalf of minors in the U.S. at least. Um, so there is a big youth element here. So that's the primary thing we want to we want to sort of protect against. We want to add parent parental controls, add transparency, add more disclosure, removal of chance. All these things sort of together will greatly reduce the risk of running afoul of these gambling laws and other laws that we that we talked about earlier in the episode. That's right. So, um, for example, um, Apple and Google 
now require uh, that all their mobile apps that have loot boxes disclose the odds of winning. And other companies uh, more recently, Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony uh, are also now requiring the disclosure of the relative probabilities of obtaining these, these randomized virtual items, items in games. So that gets also, the issue that we've seen where just like the local gaming boards insist that slot machines be quote unquote fair by giving the, the proper odds of, of a prize, that, that we want these companies to do so as well. We, the, the government rather wants the companies to do so as well. And, and that's what we're seeing, that they are being more fair and accurate with disclosures. Right. And then there is also uh, a move to have the uh, the games themselves note on their, I was going to betray my age and say packaging. <laughs> but um, to note when you're starting the game that uh, it involves, it includes in-game purchases. Mm. So they require now in-game purchase disclosures. Yeah, kids today will never know the thrill of uh, running to Toys R Us for a new Nintendo game. In a... <laughs> That's right. Well, the, the Federal Trade Commission had a workshop back in 2019 where they spoke about loot boxes and various concerns. And um, so they discussed various options for self-regulation. And some of those included, so creating a website which had detailed about explanations and sort of information showing players' cumulative in-game spending in real-world money. Because I can imagine seeing that you have like a certain virtual currency. It just doesn't really mean anything until you, you chalk it up to pounds and dollars and then suddenly frightened at how much you spent. But also things like rewarding players for behavior, like reading about loot box odds and also making items that you'd get in a loot box actually available via direct purchase. So you don't have to keep on trying to buy these boxes. Right. And that that, of course, would completely obliterate the gambling element. Yeah. Um, no one could you. If there was a prize of a million dollars in a slot machine and they said, well, you can purchase the million dollars for a million dollars, it wouldn't have much meaning. <laughs> Danielle and Yasmin, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can people find you? Well, thank you for, for having thank us. You. This yeah. is really fun. Um, I can be reached at Herbert Smith, Danielle, period, Langhoff at hsf.com. Yeah, I can. Uh, I'm yasmin.mitha.hsf.com. Um, or LinkedIn. Or LinkedIn. Thanks. So look up Danielle Langoff and Yansman Mitha on LinkedIn, where they will surely be sharing this episode. I want to thank you all again for listening to this episode of The Better's Verdict. As always, this is intended for entertainment purposes and not legal advice. To get legal advice, feel free to contact any one of us and we can give more information on the trends that we're seeing and the issues we discussed. I'm Stephen Jacobs. I can be reached on Twitter at Stephen B. Jacobs or at Herbert Smith Freehills online. Thanks again for joining. We'll see you next time.